Welcome to Act In Line, the podcast of the Act In Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts, producer and also an occasional host. Before I begin the episode, I wanted to thank everyone who came out to Grand Rapids for Act In Institute's annual conference, Act In University, last week. I got to meet so many of you who listen to this podcast, and I also got the chance to record quite a bit of content with our speakers and attendees at the conference, and I'm excited to share that with you. Our team here at Acton puts a lot of work into making this conference happen, and we're already looking forward to hosting you at Acton University next year. In the meantime, though, if you're looking to get more involved with Acton Institute, we have ongoing events throughout the year here in Grand Rapids, all over the country, and even internationally. And you can view our calendar at acton.org events. Now for a look at the episode. On the first segment, we break down the ongoing protests taking place in Hong Kong right now over the newly proposed extradition bill. We take a look at what's in this bill and what kind of human rights violations would take place if the bill were passed. The second segment of this show is a bit longer than our usual 15-minute segments, but it's really worth listening to. Acton's Trey Dimsdale is joined by Anne Rathbone Bradley, an affiliate scholar in economics at Acton Institute, and also by Adam McLeod, a professor of law at Faulkner University. Together, they'll be explaining the Kaiser v. Wilkie case, a currently pending U.S. Supreme Court case that you should know about. If you want to read more about the topics in this episode, I'll be linking all the referenced articles as well as additional resources in the show notes for this episode. And you can check those out at blog.acton.org. That's blog.acton.org. Today, I'm joined by Helen Rowley, a senior writer at The Federalist, to break down the recent protests happening in Hong Kong and some of the basics in the extradition bill that's been newly introduced. Helen, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thank you for having me. On April 3, Hong Kong's government introduced an extradition bill to its legislature, which would make changes to current laws governing extradition agreements that Hong Kong has with mainland China and Taiwan. Basically, Beijing would be given permission to remove residents with criminal charges from Hong Kong to mainland China. Helen, can you give me some more context for this? What are the current extradition agreements in place? So right before uh, United uh, Kingdom handed Hong Kong over to China in 1997, the Hong Kong legislature especially passed a new extradition bill, which specifically prohibits Hong Kong government from handing any criminal suspect to any other parts of China. They're doing so because they know the rest of China does not have the independent judicial system like Hong Kong does. And the independent judicial system is very important to Hong Kong's prosperity and peace and security. So because because Hong Kong had that specific extradition law to prohibit that from happening, 20 other countries, including the United States, established a extradition uh, treaties with Hong Kong, knowing for sure that if they have to transfer criminal suspect to Hong Kong, Hong Kong would not just simply pass down to China. So any criminal suspect will still receive due process and be, will be served under the rule of law. So that is very, very important to keep Hong Kong's judicial system independent. Now, this April extradition bill that you mentioned was the government's attempt to revise that extradition bill they established in 1997. Basically, it would allow China 
and this is the Greater China, so including Taiwan, Macau, but most most people worry about was Beijing. That will allow Beijing the ability to demand Hong Kong government to hand over anyone that Chinese government deem as criminal suspect. As we all know, that in China, who's criminal? The definition can be very murky. So if you are a political activist, if you are a uh, critics of the Beijing government, if you are a human rights activist, that's all considered criminals under the under Beijing's uh, law. So that's what the people worry about most. And it's not just a threaten the freedom of Hong Kong residents. We already see signs that, for example, foreign journalists have been denied to access a visa to Hong Kong, and business people should be really worried. Um, Anyone, any authorities in the mainland could trump up charges and to shake down business people for corruption and bribery charges. So there is a, this is a really a very obvious, not even disguised, an obvious intrusion into Hong Kong's independent judicial system. In Hong Kong, it currently functions as a one country, two systems policy agreement with China that was made between Great Britain and Beijing. Um, So Hong Kong technically has been granted judicial independence, like you said, after the UK gave it back to China in 97. Isn't the agreement, though, that their judicial independence would last for 50 years? So why is this bill being introduced in the first place? Well, yes, you're you're right that under the one country, two system uh, agreement, Hong Kong should keep its independent judicial system as well as its free market economic system for 50 years. But over the years since China took over Hong Kong, took Hong Kong back, I should say, that uh, the Chinese government has been gradually tightening its control of Hong Kong and trying to turn Hong Kong into another, basically another Chinese city. And they've been trying to do this both through economic perspective as well as a political perspective and a judicial perspective. Uh, as, I, as I mentioned, the Hong Kong's independent judicial system not only in guarantee its uh, free uh, trade and commerce activities, but most importantly, it guarantees the uh, political freedom of Hong Kong residents and anyone who comes through there. And so Hong Kong, for the last 20 years, Hong Kong was the only city in China where things that deemed criminal in mainland China are still totally accepted in Hong Kong. I'm mostly referred to political activities. For example, the annual commemoration of the June 4th Tiananmen Square massacre. You will not see any commemoration activities in mainland China, but Hong Kong was, it is the only city. The only city under China's control can still do that on an annual basis. Hmm. So that is really to Beijing's great annoyances. And they, that's why they have been trying to tighten the control of Hong Kong. And also, over the years, as Beijing grow more economically powerful and politically powerful, militarily powerful, that Hong Kong's significance has gradually been diminished, right? When China first took over Hong Kong in 1997, Hong Kong's GDP was about 20% of China's GDP. Right now, Hong Kong's GDP has dropped to only 3% of China's GDP. So as its economic significance dropped, Beijing feels it's less important to keep Hong Kong's independence. It's less important to keep that agreement. And and we have seen the signs, like, for example, in 2015, Beijing uh, sent its plainclothes police to go to Hong Kong to arrest a couple of booksellers and took them over to China to face... um, 
trumped up charges. Yes, you actually told a story about that in your piece, um, which I'm going to get to later. But uh, so shortly after the bill was proposed, 130,000 people gathered to protest the bill. Then it grew to one million. And just last week, two million were protesting together. Carrie Lam, Hong Kong's chief executive, has suspended the bill. But this really hasn't quite put anyone at ease. They're still protesting now. Um, What do you make of this? What does the future of the bill look like? Well, people are not happy about the simple suspension because they do not think they do not think that the suspension it means that the government is going to withdraw it. They think the suspension is a temporary uh, move, uh, gesture to really for the government to reposition their position, you know, their strategy rather than give it up. So that's why the, you still see protesters there because people really want the government to promise they will never try this bill again. The bill is totally withdrawn. And they also want to see Carrie Lam resign because she was appointed by Beijing, not elected by uh, by people. And, you know, Hong Kongers, uh, several of their demands, including not only withdraw the bill, but also have universal suffrage so they can elect their own chief executive from Hong Kong. And they definitely want Carrie Lam to resign because they think that she serves Beijing rather than serves the Hong Kong people. Now, you're asking where this, where the future of this bill is going. I mentioned in my article, I think this protest, as inspiring as it is, it feels like Hong Kong's Alamo moment. It's like people in Hong Kong are taking a last stand. Um, I, don't, I don't know if the Beijing or Hong Kong government will have any stomach to meet any of their, uh, the protesters' demands. Um, so to me, the most likely scenario is Eventually, the protest will die down because, you know, most of the residents want to go back to their regular lives. And then the government will come back in another shape or form to try to push something similar through. Uh, This time, probably a little more disguised because, you know, China has control, governance of Hong Kong. And that, that trajectory is moving forward. And so the only thing we can do is to help support the Hong Kong people. Um, I think there's one thing that the U.S. Congress is considering is something like if, if something like this extradition bill is passed, that the United States may consider changing their special uh, agreement with Hong Kong, stop treating it like a special place rather than just treating it like a, any other U, U, uh, Chinese cities. This will... Be a, have a huge negative impact on Hong Kong's economy. So U.S. Congress is hoping by making that kind of threat, it will either delay or force the government to change their positions on that bill. Um, so, so there's a, something maybe can do externally, but I think internally, um, you know, I admire what the people's doing, but I'm not sure that's really going to make any difference in the long run. So I'm going to tell a little bit of a story that you wrote in your piece at The Federalist that I think really shows how critical this uh, legislature change would be. Um, in a recent piece you published at The Federalist on this issue, you write that Lam Wing K, a well-known bookseller, recently moved to Taiwan because he no longer feels safe in Hong Kong, a city he loved and where he spent most of his life. He fears that if Hong Kong's new extradition bill becomes law, Beijing would want him extradited to the mainland because of the kind of books he sells. Hong Kong and mainland China don't currently have an extradition treaty, but a new bill seeks to change that. Helen, if the extradition bill were to be passed, which 
you're implying that it will eventually be passed. What kind of domino effect would this have on human rights and rule of law in Hong Kong? It will severely deteriorate Hong Kong's human rights environment. It's already happening. Like I mentioned, you know, Liam is one of the booksellers who was illegally arrested by uh, plainclothes Chinese police in Hong Kong and then took him to uh, to China without giving him the due process and representation uh, under the rule of law. And so what it will happen is you will see that the people will move away from Hong Kong and you will see Hong Kong people will lose their the freedom of, of, of expression, freedom press that they have enjoyed over, you know, over 100 years. And it will also put a chilling impact on the rest of us. China. And you actually, you will put a chilling effect on Taiwan, too. And as, I don't know if you heard that the Taiwan had a big protest over the weekend uh, to anti the Beijing controlled media that, uh, in Taiwan. So if and China tried to persuade Beijing tried to persuade Taiwan that they can use the similar one country, two system model to you know, to, to connect Beijing with Taiwan. But now Taiwan is look at a situation deteriorating Hong Kong, they're probably going to have a second thought. And guess what? Beijing will never allow Taiwan to declare independence. So, and the Beijing vowed many times that it will use military means to take Taiwan back. So, so this, when you talk about domino effect, there's a lot of things will happening down the road that is going to a very wrong direction. And we, 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 sh- we should try to do everything we can to prevent, prevent that from happening. Mm-hmm. And what effect would this have on business relations that the U.S. currently has with China? Well, that's an interesting question. So the Chinese President uh, Xi and the U.S. President Trump will meet this week at the G20. And I mentioned in one of my articles, I'm a little bit disappointed that so far uh, President Trump hasn't said anything in support of, of, of the Hong Kong protest. And I really think the protesters handed him a powerful card that he can use to, in terms of his negotiation with uh, U.S. Uh, with the Chinese president, um, because the the struggle between the competition between U.S. and China is not just trade alone. And if you look at the U.S. demand, a lot of them has related to uh, forced tra- technology transfer and cyber securities and cyber theft, things like that. And those things are are not just. That's why we'll never be satisfied with just China promise to buy some extra tons of soybeans. So I think the protester hands him a powerful card that he can use to enhance U.S.'s negotiation in trade negotiation. Um, but, but so far, you know, he said nothing. And I don't know if he tried to save the face for the Chinese president or try to use it in a more secretive discussion. Uh, we just have to wait and see if, if he's going to take advantage of that. And not only that, that the U.S. has a moral leadership role in the world. You know, people look up to the United States to take the moral leadership, to support freedom. And if we just did the same thing we did like 30 years ago, when after Tiananmen Square, the United States decided, well, we're going con- to overlook the massacre, just continue engagement. Eventually, China will behave better, will respect the human rights better. And we should have learned our lesson. None of that actually happened. And actually, what happened was the opposite. Now, the United States has much less leverage to confront China's human rights issues and, uh, and facing severe, uh, severe challenges in many other areas, too. So that's a historical lesson that uh, I hope the Trump administration will learn and take that wisdom to the G20 meeting. 
Now, before we close out, I also wanted to cite the most recent article you wrote on this issue. Um, It's titled, How Christianity is Helping Keep Hong Kong's Stunning Protests a Peaceful Beacon to the World. Can you tell us more about this? Because you say that churches are actually playing a role in the protests in Hong Kong and as a result are easing some of the potential violence What's going on there? Well, so churches has a long history in Hong Kong's culture, society, and system. The first Catholic church was established in 1841, actually a year before uh, UK took over Hong Kong from a Chinese go- uh, from Chinese government. So the churches have played a very long, uh, very important role in the long history of Hong Kong, and people had more confidence in in the church than the government. And the Hong Kong churches and their church leaders are very outspoken about Hong Kong's, um, you know, people's, protected people's human rights. And so they played a very active role in this protest. First of all, there are many schools in Hong Kong that are church-affiliated, and so they educated many Hong Kong residents. And so even though most of the residents are not Christians, but they have deep respect and received the Christian-affiliated education. And also the clergy and the priests and Christians are very active in the Hong Kong protest in the last two, two and a half weeks. And they, uh, they led him singing, they led the Bible reading, and they led the peaceful protest. And also in Hong Kong's law, uh, religious um, uh, protests are, protect, are protected. So when the police turned violent against the protesters, protesters started singing hymns and to in, in one way to show that uh, maybe they are Christians, another this is a religious protest. Another way to show they are com- their protests are peaceful in nature. So in that way, they are protected. And so there's a, all this different involvement ensured that we see those amazing behaviors from Hong Kong protesters. You know, two million people protested, and there was no litter on the street. On the street, that two million people walked. Because before the protesters made sure they pick up all the leaders before they went home that night. And also nothing, nothing was burned down, not a car, not a building, not a trash can. You know, everything was, everything was clean and orderly. And people were amazed about the Hong Kongers' behavior. All these people, this, this human waves. And also they made, they made um, a ways for the ambulance to go through and that amazing pictures. I hope everybody gets a chance to see that. But the well-behaved Hong Kongers, the reason they are so well-behaved, part of it because of the Christian education and part of it because of the Christian involvement in, uh, act as a restraint in the protest to make sure this is a peaceful protest. They do not give the government any excuse to cause them a riot, to diminish the moral uh, authority of the protesters. Well, Helen, thank you so much for speaking with me about this today. And I would love to have you on the show again. Thank you for having me. America's robust civic life has been one of its most defining characteristics. Alexis de Tocqueville, a French aristocrat who studied America in the early 1830s, was astounded by people's inclination to form clubs and societies of every variety. These kinds of groups form our civil society and knit our communities together. But recent surveys of our nation's civic life indicate that some areas of the country are suffering from a complete breakdown of civil society and community. Our social fabric is fraying and giving way to social alienation. And these issues deserve our attention. 
Join us at the Omni Hotel in Pittsburgh on August 2 to explore why civil society is so important to the health of our country and how it can be restored. Register now at actin.org slash events. This is Trey Dimsdale, Director of Program Outreach at the Acton Institute. Thanks for joining in, uh, listening in today to uh, Acton Line, our, the podcast of the Acton Institute. I'm joined in our studios today by uh, Dr. Ann Rathbone Bradley, an affiliate scholar in economics with the Acton Institute, and Adam McLeod, professor, Associate Professor of Law at Faulkner University School of Law in Alabama. Thank, thanks to the two of you for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us. So um, we are talking about a topic today that I think that we actually need to establish a little bit of um, you know, credibility as to why our listeners need to know about this. We're talking about an area of law that most lawyers find boring, law students find boring, but we're talking about administrative law. So administrative law is the field of law in which uh, the regulatory powers, the administrative powers of government agencies are treated, how we get uh, regulations that will regulate everything from, uh, you know, the the airline industry, That's the, the, those regulations are promulgated by the FAA, the FCC regulates, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the industries involved with communications. And so... Um, we are we are right now uh, in, waiting for a, an opinion to be handed down by the Supreme Court that could have radical implications for the way that uh, the administrative uh, administrative law is is practiced, the way that regulations are promulgated. So, Adam, do you would you mind giving us a brief overview of the case that's before before the court right now and why it is that we should care about it? Yeah, the case is uh, Kaiser versus Wilkie. And um, there's, a, there's a personal or particular aspect of this case, which I think is interesting and important. Um, and then there's a general um, uh, political or jurisprudential aspect of the case that I think is, um, is really important. So the, the case itself, the particular, um, concerns a, uh, a Marine Corps veteran, James Kaiser, who served um, honorably and was decorated for combat valor in uh, the Vietnam conflict. Um, and uh, after he returned uh, to the United States, claimed that he was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, um, and therefore was eligible um, for certain medical benefits under the laws which govern the, um, the, the Department of Veteran Affairs, or VA. Um, he submitted his first claim in 1982, and um, he was denied benefits at that time. Um, because the VA um, experts drew the conclusion that he was not, in fact, suffering from PTSD. He uh, reapplied um, a couple of decades later. Um, in 2006, I believe it was, he uh, submitted a, a claim to the VA to review his denied claim. Um, and it's, it's critical here to distinguish between two ways in which a veteran can reopen a denied claim. One is where the veteran uh, himself comes forward with new evidence, which was not submitted at the time of the original claim. Um, if the veteran does that and convinces the VA that he's entitled to benefits, um, he gets benefits going forward, but he doesn't get uh, benefits retroactively to the time of his first denial. The other way to have the VA revisit a claim is uh, if the veteran says, no, there are, there are documents in the possession of the government, the United States government, 
which the VA should have accessed because, of course, it's an agency of the United States government. And if I was denied my claim because the VA failed to look at all the relevant documents, um, then the law says he's entitled not only to benefits going forward, but also all the way back to the time of the original denial. This, of course, makes sense. If it's the government's fault that you were wrongly denied benefits, you should, you should receive benefits going all the way back to 1982, the time of the original denial. Now, the, the, in this case, um, uh, two things happened in the, in the rehearing. One is his diagnosis was changed. So the, the people who evaluated him at the second hearing uh, uh, determined that, in fact, he was suffering from PTSD and had been all along. The second thing which happened, which had not happened at the first hearing, was the uh, VA actually went and got his records of service from the Department of Defense, which showed that he had been in combat and had been, uh, uh, of course, exposed to all of the, the horrors that happened in combat. Um, and of course, this is evidence which supports his, uh, his allegation that he was suffering PTSD as a result of his service in Vietnam. Um, but the VA said um, under, the, under the standard, uh, that actually does not obligate us to give you retroactive benefits all the way back to 1982 because the fact that you were in combat is not relevant. Relevant is the key term here to the question whether or not you had PTSD. And that was the reason why we denied benefits in the first place. Um, now, you might say, uh, okay, well, that sounds like a plausible argument, uh, but it doesn't sound like the most plausible argument. That seems like the best legal argument would be that uh, if the evidence shows that he was in combat, that would be relevant evidence to the question whether he suffered PTSD as a result of his honorable service. And so the, the VA's uh, legal argument or legal reason for not giving him retroactive benefits would seem like not the strongest possible legal correct conclusion here. Um, but the federal courts were obligated to defer to the VA's interpretation of that regulation that only relevant evidence will compel the VA to give retroactive benefits because of a, a decision of the Supreme Court of the United States from the late 1990s known as Auer versus Robbins. And Auer versus Robbins gives rise to what's now known as the Auer Doctrine. The Auer Doctrine is one of three important doctrines which instruct federal courts how much deference to give to regulatory agencies in their judgments, which affect people's rights and duties. Uh, one is uh, known as the Chevron Doctrine, which comes from a case called Chevron versus Natural Resources Council. Um, and that says that courts should generally defer to agencies as they're interpreting congressional enactments, federal statutes. Um, the second is, um, is known as Skidmore versus Swift and Company. And that says that federal courts should defer to agencies uh, on matters within their expertise. And then the third is our. And the our doctrine says that federal courts should defer to federal agencies as agencies are, are interpreting their own regulations. In other words, the court should not exercise its own judgment as to whether the agency's interpretation of its own regulations is the best or most lawful or correct interpretation of those regulations. That's what's at stake in this case. Okay, so the scheme as you describe it is Congress passes some sort of an enablement act that gives authority to an executive um, body um, the power to promulgate some sort of regulation. And then the scheme that's been constructed through these um, these uh, precedents that, you're, that you've described 
then gives those agencies the exclusive power to interpret those regulations and apply those regulations. Yes. So what we ultimately have in the way that the administrative state is structured presently is that once that once that enablement act is passed, then all of a sudden in this case the Bureau of Veterans Affairs becomes judge, jury, and executioner for all aspects of of, of this person's claim before them. All right. So with with regard to the actual subject matter, the actual you know parties involved in, in this particular case, um, that's not quite as uh, as 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 relevant in, the, in a kind of a larger scheme. The, the specific facts of the case are not not really uh, relevant to the larger scheme of the way that our uh, you know our our um, government interacts with with businesses. So, Anne, would you mind giving us a little bit of um, of uh, comment on? The way that regulation, the regulatory scheme as it exists, impacts business and economic development and growth. Sure. Uh, so this, of course, is very important. In economics, we call this kind of the institutions that govern behavior. And institutions really are the rules that people face. And so in this explicit example, these are formalized rules that are being adjudicated. And as they change, they can and do change behavior. So the regulatory state in general or the right, you know, the status of regulations in any given society, of course, has a huge impact on businesses in a couple of ways. It can impact whether they can exist or not, the terms on which they can exist, and kind of the things they have to do to maintain their business. And so what we know about the growth of, you know, one of the ways we measure this as economists is looking at the Federal Register, which of course tracks uh, federal regulations over time, and these just have continued to grow and grow and grow over the 20th century. So it becomes a cumbersome environment in which businesses, and I, I would put the focus too here on because you you tied this to economic growth and economic development, which I think is the right broader way to think about it. If it's very hard for people to start a business, and businesses, you know, we think of entrepreneurs in the sense of the Bill Gateses of the world and the Jeff Bezos, and of course they're huge, hugely successful entrepreneurs, but they started out as small entrepreneurs engaging in what I like to call micro-entrepreneurship. So somebody has an idea, and they put a little bit of their own capital behind that idea, and they have to sink or swim based on consumers. And economists kind of like that arrangement because it leads to goods and services that people want and make people better off. Uh, so the problem with an excessively burdensome regulatory state is that I think it truncates the process of economic development at the start. It can make it very difficult for people to even open businesses that might not require a lot of capital. So for example, um, and there's countless, but I'll just use one, uh, occupational licensing is, uh, is a phenomenon that we have seen to be growing in nature. Uh, so if you look back at 1950, the number of occupations which required you to have a license to before you could start owning and operating a business was much smaller than it is today. And some of that might be good, right? If you're getting heart surgery, you really actually want the doctor to be qualified. And there are ways to kind of assess that qualification. Uh, but some of this just kind of comes from uh, market actors who are negotiating inside the industry for these regulations to protect themselves from competition. And occupational licensing is, of course, one example of how you might do that. So if, you know... Um, 
if you want to make sure that food trucks, if you're a restaurant owner, you don't want a food truck just showing up at noon parked right in front of your building. And, and no restaurant owner would want that. Uh, and what the market would say is that's going to work itself out in some way. They're different goods. One, you go in and sit down. One, you don't. Let's see how consumers decide. But of course, the, the existing market player, if they can use the state via kind of creating regulations that make it hard for the food truck to do that, which is what we've seen across cities, then that micro-entrepreneurship gets stunted. And so ultimately, economic growth gets stunted. So it's not to say that as economists, we think all regulations are bad or evil or anything like that, but it becomes a slippery slope because you, I think you have to look at what industry, is there a public health or safety concern, and who is agitating for the regulations? And in many cases, it's the insiders who kind of want to Insulates them themselves. Right. So it's like, for example, right now, it's hit the news cycle in the last couple of weeks that the CEO of CEO of Walmart has um, advocated for one of these ridiculous, you know, levels of a, a minimum wage. But Walmart ultimately can afford it. It's right. the price of doing business and, and driving competition out of business that can't afford a new higher minimum wage that's like a, a temporary expense to knock competition out of out of the market right. so that Walmart then ultimately is able to embrace a larger market share than they had to begin with. So, um, Adam, where do these where do these regulations come from? Most listeners are probably aware of the, you know, the 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 process by which we get a law that the way it passes through both houses of Congress goes to the president's desk. But these are a little bit different. They have the full effect of law but they don't have the same type of, of um, legislative and executive oversight in the in the in the in the the process that you know something we would think of as a traditional law would have. Yeah, so regulation has to start with a statute. It has to come from Congress. The authority for it has to come from Congress. So what generally happens is Congress uh, creates a, uh, a statutory regulatory scheme and has particular rules that they enact. Um, but then in addition to those rules, they will say, um, also, we empower the Secretary of Defense or the Secretary of Agriculture or the, the uh, Department of Veterans Affairs or whatever um, to promulgate additional rules and regulations, um, and uh, which will you know, bring this scheme um, uh, into being. So it starts with a statute from Congress, which empowers the agency. And then the agency has to interpret that statute and decide how much power it actually has, what it's permitted by Congress to do. The next step is that the agency actually engages in a process of rulemaking. Um, and that process of rulemaking is governed by a, a, con a congressional enactment, a federal statute known as the Administrative Procedures Act. And the Administrative Procedures Act has two key components. One is a requirement that when agencies make rules, they do uh, what's called a notice and comment period. They, they provide public notice to the public. This is what we're proposing to promulgate. And then they allow comments from the public on that notice. Now, the idea behind this is to um, – uh, it was enacted in 1946 during sort of the, the fever of the post-Roosevelt uh, you know, expansion of the progressive um, uh, state um, uh, to try to expose some of the backroom dealing that's going on and, and some of the crony – you know, corrupt opportunities that, that exist uh, in, the, in the regulatory state and to sort of cast light on the regulatory process. But it doesn't actually 
really put any accountability on administrative agencies because all the agencies required by law to do is provide the notice, receive the comments, um, and then there's no requirement that they actually accommodate what is the best judgment based on those comments. So there's no substantive limitation on the agencies. It's purely procedural. The second component of the um, Administrative Procedures Act is a judicial review standard. And the judicial review standard of the Administrative Procedures Act um, uh, has, has two elements. This, is, this is directs federal courts as they are reviewing regulations and decisions of, of administrative agencies that they should only overturn the regulation or the ruling if it is either arbitrary or capricious – or it is otherwise not in accordance with the law. And this is where the action is. What does it mean that a regulation is not otherwise in accordance with the law? Now, before the 20th century, back in the 19th century, um, it was the case that federal courts exercised a, a supervisory role over administrative agencies. And this was known as judicial review. Judicial review has come to mean something very different today. Um, but in the 19th century, judicial review just meant that the courts were going to supervise the agencies and make sure that they were not acting unlawfully, that they were acting within the proper bounds of their lawful authority, that the regulations they were promulgating were not depriving people of vested private rights. Um, what this new regime that starts to emerge in the 20th century uh, with cases like um, Bowles versus uh, 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 well, the Bulls case, Seminole Rock, um, R versus Robbins and others, is that the court increasingly began deferring to these agencies on their own interpretations of law, both the statute under the Chevron deference and the agency's own regulations under our deference. Um, and what this means is effectively there's no substantive oversight over the agency's determination what the law is because there's none in the notice and comment period. That's a pure procedure that they have to comply with. And now there's none effectively in, uh, in court because the courts are, are going to defer to the agency's own interpretations. So the agencies have a certain incentive then to be promulgating regulations that are broad, vague, give them a, as much maneuvering room as they can possibly have. Now, and um, when we look outside of the American context and we look at economic development in non-developed areas of the world, this is a problem um, that takes on a different a different flavor. Um, so, what is the impact if you're if you're a person who's wanting to start a business to entering into a world with these these types of regulations that are um, that seem so unstable? Well, I think first is it there's a lack of predictability for people who want to, especially if we extend this conversation to the global implications, right? Where you, in many cases, you're not dealing in a society that has a firm rule of law in the way that we understand that, right? Transparency and equality before the law. So it becomes cronyist in its nature, which is how do you play the game? Who do you have to know? Um, some economists call this political entrepreneurship, and it has kind of some very nefarious outcomes. So the incentives are shifted such that what you're trying to do is maximize your position or your leverage within the confines of the game rather than kind of the broader understanding of entrepreneurship, which we've already spoken about. And so I think that, that you know, as I've mentioned before, the consequences to economic growth are – 
you can't look into the future and even say as an entrepreneur, how am I going to navigate this system? And so this disproportionately impacts people at the bottom of the income distribution. So I think there's a justice issue. There's an equality issue here, which is that the wealthier you are or the more politically connected you are, those kind of things reinforce themselves in this type of system, which is that politically well-connected people remain politically connected and they are able to enhance their incomes and wealth because of that kind of privilege. And so, you know, we need a, a set of rules that are transparent and that provide equality. And kind of to Adam's comments, uh, there's a way to regulate the regulators. And so in kind of the most egregious examples of societies that are run on cronyism, there's no regulation of the regulators at all. And there's no precedent around that. And so might makes right. And for entrepreneurs, they can't even, you know, even if they have a little plot of land in which they want to use as collateral to start a business or grow a business, they are totally paralyzed in doing so. Um, so it really disincentivizes the seeds of economic growth, which is entrepreneurship. And so people engage in, you know, kind of different types of entrepreneurship. But I don't think you get large-scale commerce, which, you know, extends the benefit of consumption goods to more people, which is what we want. In your mind, I'm imagining as an economist, you really don't care about the process, how we get regulations. There's probably a lot of different ways that this could happen. But it, But speaking as an economist, what would you say is an optimal level of regulation? And what are the types of things that are legitimately regulated by some sort of government authority? That's a great question. I think the optimal optimal amount is very low. Um, and why do I say that? It's not really an ideological point at all. It's an economic point. And so I think Ann Kruger, who is very good um, really the economist who brought us the word rent-seeking, right, which is what we're talking about. It's trying to seek rents or benefits from the states and we can – from the state and we can do that in a variety of ways, bailouts, subsidies, preferential status, blocking competition. Uh, and so what she says is here's the test uh, for regulations that an economist would justify on economic terms. So they're efficient uh, in their outcomes. One is that it must be reasonable – and two is that it must not be capturable by special interests. So what does reasonable mean for an economist? It sounds like a vague word, but it's not. It means that it satisfies the cost-benefit test. So the benefits must outweigh the cost of a regulation. So we can apply that to anything. We could say, hey, we want you know fewer people to be consuming drugs, or we want more people graduating from college, or we want less environmental pollution. You can pick any policy or pick any outcome to which a policy or regulation is dedicated, and the economist is going to say, okay, we understand the end, the desired goal or outcome. And there's a variety of ways to achieve that end. There's not one way. There's never one way. So regulation might be one way. Um, and so we would put the regulation at hand to that test. I think that's in some ways easier to do because you can hire economists um, who can do that analysis and say, what do we think the benefits are going to be both in the short and the longer term? What do we think the costs are going to be? And what economists really think about is not just the seen costs, but the unseen costs. So what are the unintended consequences of this regulation? How are people going to alter the behavior to try to create workarounds? So the economist is kind of forced to measure that, come up with an assessment. But the second part is really tricky. It has to not be capturable because regulations that are capturable by special interest groups will, will likely never go away. So they have a durability to them. Uh, that even if we can look at them and say they're inefficient, they're creating all these bad outcomes, they're generating inequality or, or whatever, 
because the special interest has captured the regulation at hand, uh, there's kind of like this um, political will around it. And there's people, the beneficiaries are working very hard to maintain that privilege. And so that's, I think, a good guide to say what regulations are helpful and what regulations aren't. And so we'd have to go through the analysis to do that. But I think the other thing I'd like to say as an economist in this conversation is that I want to use the word regulation with a small r. And what I mean by that is there's a lot of different ways to discipline people. And I think we tend to believe that if the market is creating anomalies or it's failing or it's you know doing things we don't want it to do, not the ideal outcomes, then we need to use the state to regulate. I think that's sometimes true. Uh, and, and there's real good cases for that, public goods, you know, uh, monopolies, things like this. Um, so maybe the state can be the person or the entity to do that. But regulation doesn't just have to be enforced by the state. There's, you know, the market has a way of disciplining the behavior of people. So there's all these other ways that you can use reputation and things like this to, to regulate behavior. So I just I want to broaden our understanding of how we think about solving the problem. Yeah, and if we if we kind of back up all the way to the beginning, if we pull this back to the American context and back up all the way to the beginning of the American context anyway, the constitutional provision uh, that most most I'm speaking off the top of my head here, but most of these regulations are, are based in is a grant to Congress to make interstate commerce or to regulate interstate commerce. And so I think that we've we've entered into a time period actually a long time ago where we 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 could pull out regulate and put in control uh, when all regulate ever really meant was to make regular to to provide kind of like the infrastructure to be able to make interstate commerce um, possible with as few interruptions and as efficient as possible and but we've in fact come up with a scheme that's in many ways designed to make as inefficient as possible. So, um, Adam, talking about the actual process, you know, and, and I'm not necessarily asking for, uh, you know, the, the, the blueprint for the ideal um, promulgation scheme, but what are, the, what are the key things that absolutely have to change in the way that we promulgate regulations today at the federal level? Well, uh, ideally, we would go back to a pre-progressive revolution understanding of regulation, which is to say that what it means to regulate is to make people's existing rights and duties toward each other more regular, more, regular, more specific, more easily enforceable. Um, the 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 post progressive uh, revolution understanding of regulation means to actually generate new rules and to actually change people's existing legal status. And when we allow any official, whether it's legislative or executive, the power to do that, to just take rights away from people and give them to someone else, that's problematic. Um, and we've lost our jurisprudential understanding of the importance of vested rights and duties. That 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 is a that's a that's a bigger problem than the court is going to address in um, in Kaiser versus Wilkie, um, and 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 more you know bro more broadly implicated than Auer versus Robbins. Um, I don't think we're going to recover that anytime soon. We have a lot of work to do to recover a proper understanding of the importance of vested rights and duties. More um, modestly, what what we should have is better judicial oversight of regulatory activities of uh, and, and adjudicatory activities of regulatory agencies. The court's job, a, a federal judge's job, 
is to ensure that the law has been complied with. And our deference, uh, our doctrine, um, excuses judges from doing their job in this area. And that's got to change, in my opinion. Um, So this case is actually asking the court to overrule our... Yes, that's right. So this, uh, it's an unusual case in that regard. Usually good advocacy, good lawyer uh, work says you draft the question presented to the court as narrowly as possible. You try to get them to resolve just the, the, the issue and just the narrowest grounds on which they can uh, rule for your client. This is an unusual case in that the question presented to the court was, should the Supreme Court overrule its precedent in Auer versus Robbins, which, of course, affects not just Mr. Kaiser, but everybody who's, uh, who's regulated by an agency that's interpreting its own regulations. Um, and that's what the court has been presented uh, with because— And Auer's not even an old precedent. 1998, there, I think. There are people on the court today who were— yeah, writing concurrences and dissents an hour. That's right. Yeah. So, uh, so it's not a it's not a long established precedent, but it's long established enough that there were arguments about whether the court should uh, defer under the doctrine of that's known as stare decisis, which the court, which means the court simply r- decides like cases alike that it should keep our in place, even if it's a bad doctrine, just because this is the way we've been doing things for a couple of decades, um, and therefore we should just defer to our own precedents. Um, you know, I don't, in my, in my judgment, that's not a sufficient reason to leave our in place if, in fact, our is contrary to the to the law and to the Constitution. Um, but that's, you know, that's going to be one of the issues we're going to have to work through. So, Anne, imagine that you are on the acting stage and we have, have um, put together a debate and there's an economist who is your mirror image, who is in favor of regulation. Um, who who sees you know a heavy-handed role for government? Uh, what exactly are the arguments that that person is advancing? What I mean, what are the most cogent arguments on the other side of the of the stage in that debate? Using regulation to solve a variety of different problems that we see in society and in business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Um, so I think that the arguments that they make, which appeal to people, is that markets are unpredictable. We don't know where they're going to go next. And um, we're worried that markets themselves generate inequality of wealth and income, and maybe regulation can level the playing field. Uh, I was just having a conversation with someone earlier about how do you overcome historic um, inequalities and, and, you know, via segregation and things like this. So if people are blocked historically for decades, um, access to opportunities in housing and education and things like this. What do you do? And could regulation play a place in overcoming some of those things? So I think those are real questions that we have to ask and we shouldn't dismiss them. Uh, so I think, you know, the the people on the other side who are using regulation to solve the problems that they see, I don't think it's a crazy thing to suggest. And I wouldn't dismiss those arguments out of hand. I think my response to them is, exactly what we're seeing in this case, which is that we have a problem where the regulators are kind of unregulated, and they can then have a lot of latitude to say, well, what does the word relevant mean? Okay, well, sorry, we're not going to, we're not going to pay you what you think you're owed. And you're PTSD is, is, is related exactly to your service for the country. So I think that gives the, these regulatory bodies a lot of power to just be unaccountable 
to the people they're supposed to serve. So that's the that's the comeback that I would have. Uh, and I don't think that even kind of my mirror image on the other side would disagree with that. So I actually think we're talking about how to make marginal changes here. And this is, case is one of them rather than I don't think you get anywhere by saying, oh, we just need to overturn the entire regulatory state, which might lead to more efficient economic outcomes. But that's not the world we live in. So I think we need to take the claims of inequality and leveling the playing field seriously um, by, by you know, people who might disagree with me. I'm just not always sure the regulatory state is the way because of the lack of incentives around accountability and good performance. Right. And, and it also seems, too, that the, the, the conversation about regulation almost always seems to revolve around an assumption that we're talking about regulating Google or regulating Amazon. But this particular case involves a single United States Marine who, you know, kind of despite the fact that that you know our regulatory system has kind of messed this up. We're really just talking about a provision of an employment contract, essentially, uh, and the benefits that flow from an employment contract. It may be a special type of employment contract, but this is a this is one individual citizen who's entered into an agreement with an employer who happens to be the United States government and is now trying to take advantage of what that contract looked like to the begin at the beginning. But our system has allowed the employer to have free range to manipulate and to reinterpret that contract that we would never allow even Google or Amazon or some sort of a private employer to do. So, Adam, one last question uh, before we wrap up. What happens the day after this decision comes down and if our is overruled, all of a sudden we don't have the same type of judicial guidance for how the process works? What happens on, on, on that, that next morning? I think it de- I think it depends on what replaces our. Um, I do think re- you know reading through the transcript of the oral argument, it seems likely that there are five votes to uh, overturn our. Um, probably not five votes to overturn Skidmore, and probably not five votes yet to overturn Chevron. So in other words, the question after the question people are going to be asking the day after. Kaiser versus uh, Robbins uh, uh, Wilkie is handed down is what's next? <laughs> what which aspect of the scheme is next going to be challenged? Um, there certainly are justices currently sitting on the Supreme Court who I th- who have expressed their view that they'd like to see Chevron deference reexamined, and and so I think that the question is going to be how far is this to be pushed back? How much more oversight? Are the federal courts going to start exercising over administrative agencies in the future? And what's the next test case going to uh, going to do in terms of further constraining regular administrative agencies within the bounds of law? All right. Well, thank you, Anne. Thank you, Adam, for joining us uh, on the podcast today. Uh, we appreciate you uh, you tuning in and, and listening. Uh, this is Trey Dimsdale. It's been a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. We're always trying to make a great show for you. And one of the ways in which we can do that is to use feedback from you. We would love to hear from you, whether you'd like to suggest a specific guest or topic, let us know what you like or dislike in our shows, or just generally let us know why you like listening. You can shoot us an email at actinline at actin.org. In addition to that, we're trying to create a new occasional segment for the show. If you have any questions related to a subject we've covered on this podcast before, or questions related to economics, faith, 
business, or maybe a current issue you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, leave us a message at 888-705-4180. If your question is picked, you'll get to hear it on the show. And members of our team here at the Acton Institute will break it down on the podcast. Last but definitely not least, if you like Act In Line, please subscribe today. And don't forget to share it with your friends or family members who might also enjoy listening to this podcast. We're available on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. This episode is produced by me, Caroline Roberts, with audio mixing by Doug Nagel. 